If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the new Zoom Dino Week, and Dave Woodard. Only four days until Christmas, and Santa's on his way. Maybe you want to give that guy the parking spot. Instead, the finger. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 309. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Hamilton today. Great to have you aboard. Feel free. Jump into the fun. This burns my rear end, man. And uh, this is, again, just an ongoing tax creep. Just another way to get more money out of us without any kind of de- a debate or discussion whatsoever. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember uh, what they used to call the sin taxes. Those were taxes that they would jack on to uh, what they called sin products like alcohol and tobacco specifically back in the day. And, and, and it usually was an election issue and it would be used in a campaign and, and such. And, and then all of a sudden this federal government came up with, uh, I think it's called an accelerator tax, but just every year the price of alcohol, for example, in this case goes up by the price of inflation every year. And this was first brought to my attention by a, a friend of mine who's in the business of they import uh, wine from various places in Europe and, and, and you get it at restaurants as opposed to what you see in the uh, liquor stores or what have you. And he was saying, like, this is coming. And because inflation is so big this year, it's going to be huge. And the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is bringing this to attention as the federal government is increasing its alcohol excise taxes by 6.3% percent on april fool's day and it's no joke man and it's like is your check going up 6.3 percent uh it's absolutely amazing and this is just an automatic thing it happens it's no there's no debate it just goes into the giant coffers like everything else we pay does and then is given back to us i guess in times of crisis in the forms of payouts but let's bring in robin spear prairie director for the canadian taxpayers federation and with us now robin thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah not so bad thanks guys i i'm surprised this are you surprised that this hasn't gotten more attention because again i'm old enough to remember whenever they increased these taxes it was a huge issue and now it's kind of silently done in the back room every year and nobody knows about it yeah, that's right. No, I think I think folks intuitively know that the price of uh, their favorite beverages are, are going up. But right now, like you said, everything's everything's going up with inflation. Right, we're still floating around that forty-year high of uh, of inflation. But you know, I think people will notice on uh, on April Fool's Day again. Like you said, no joke. But the way the federal government is increasing this excise tax on liquor, it's it's a sneaky way. They've they've rigged it. This goes back to the 2017 budget when inflation was back around 2%. Uh, and of course, now prices are through the roof. So it's going to increase every year automatically and at the rate of inflation. And they're going to do it without a vote in parliament. So it's also this sort of undemocratic, sneaky way to raise taxes on your, your favorite beverage. Um, you know, and it's going to happen every year thereafter as well. So um, yeah, for... For your listeners, uh, you know, finishing their Christmas shopping, their their New Year's party shopping, uh, they're probably stocking up. They might want to stock up even more because April first, uh, there's going to be a big price spike on all uh, all their favorite uh, drinks. 
And, you know, you bring up a valid point, Rob, and this was sort of pushed through uh, back at a time when inflation was relatively low and nobody really noticed it. Nobody really cared. But all of a sudden, as prices go through the roof, this is a free ride for the for the federal government. It really is, you know, and Canadians are already consumers already face among the very highest taxes uh, in the world on their favorite uh, beverages. You mentioned your your friend and colleague uh, importing wine. There are a lot of wine producing regions, those great countries around the Mediterranean that don't even have an excise tax on wine. Um, big beer producing countries like Germany have a, have a really low excise tax. It's about uh, a third of what it is in Canada. So, you know, our, our, our brewers, our vintners, our distillers, they're doing these great creative, innovative things. They're flourishing, making these world leading products. But they're already at a competitive disadvantage. And so these huge automatic hikes to the excise tax federally uh, put them even even further behind, you know, and and to that matter, it hurts bars and restaurants who are coming out of the pandemic rules, hurts farmers growing the products for these uh, for these uh, value added products in Canada. Um, you know, and and trying to compete with these other producers who don't have to face these egregious tax. In fact, in America, brewers have been facing uh, tax cuts the last five years, while in Canada, it's uh, it's going up. And you know, this the six point three percent that they've come up with. It's sort of a difficult calculation, but that's what's going to be the hike on the excise tax April first. Um, you know, in, in Canada alone, that just means a, an immediate $45 million tax hit to brewers. So, you know, it doesn't look like a, a huge amount when you we look at it per, per can or per pint of beer, but this is a huge tax hike on uh, on a lot of these industries that are, are job creators and contributing to our economy. And this is like every year, isn't it? This is not just every so often. This happens automatically, does it not? Every year, automatically, no vote in uh, in parliaments. It's it's just incredible what's uh, what what's happening. And you know the, the funny thing about this too is you you mentioned you know history and syntaxes. There's there's this bizarre precedent on on this one. It, you know, in a time when we also had soaring spending, soaring deficits, and and rampant inflation, forty years ago in the early eighties, uh, the Pierre Trudeau government implemented the exact same sort of escalator tax. They brought in a tax that would happen automatically at the rate of inflation without a vote in parliament. Uh, and it was devastating to a lot of the uh, a lot of the upstart Canadian distillers at the time who even had to shutter their doors. Um, after the 84 election, it was rescinded and it went back to, you know, if politicians want to raise your taxes, they got to stand up and vote on it. Um, so yeah, it's just bizarre. It's like everything old is, is new again in Ottawa. And, uh, like, like Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all, all over again with this tax hike. And there, there's no added cost to them. This is just guaranteed revenue. Guaranteed revenue. Yeah, absolutely. It hits taxpayers and consumers. And, you know, the, the other thing about this too, is if, if you don't enjoy cracking a cold one or, or sipping that glass of Chardonnay or, or what have you. Um, there's a bad precedent here too, in that parliamentarians don't have to vote to raise taxes. Hmm. They just they just rig it automatically. It's going to happen annually and at that rate of inflation. So um, you know, there's concern on the precedent here, but certainly for for consumers, this is a big uh, tax hike coming right away. Robin Spear with us, Prairie Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, booze going up by inflation as it does automatically every year on April 1st. Robin, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot, Scott. Take care.
we were uh, talking earlier, telling you that uh, uh, Ukraine's President uh, Zelensky has touched down in Washington and is meeting uh, with President Joe Biden uh, as we speak. Uh, and this is uh, obviously quite significant in the sense it's his first uh, foreign trip since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine way back when. And you have to think there is significance in the sense that what will the parting gift be as uh, he takes off uh, back home. You also can't lose uh, lose sight of the fact that hours ago this man was in a war zone uh, hearing bombs going off. Now he's in the lap of luxury in Washington. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. Elliot, so many questions here, so I'll let you go. But how significant is this? Um, why is this happening now? And are we to expect that there's an announcement or a parting gift with this in some way? It's very significant. You have two wartime leaders. And we have to recall what's happened. We're at the end of this year now, but at this year started with an illegal invasion of, by a major power of its of its uh, neighboring state for no reasons whatsoever, except they wanted to do so. This has been a reversal of everything that's been built up since the Second World War. Russia has invaded Ukraine and has been mercilessly bombarding it in all kinds of ways. So what we're seeing now is the logical downstream result of that, not necessarily the inevitable result. Um, Mr. Putin thought he was going to, literally for a walk in the park. He thought we'd have a one, one week war. And then uh, that didn't work out. And as you know, the war aims have continued to shift. So we now have a situation where the U.S. has rallied very highly successfully resistance to that kind of behavior in, in this era. But that is the behavior we're dealing with. So therefore, the meeting of the two wartime leaders, which is what is happening right now as we speak, is very significant indeed. So why now? Are we to assume there's an announcement coming at the end of this? I think why now is uh, an interesting question in and of itself. They wanted to meet earlier, keeping in mind that uh, these two leaders speak often uh, by video and other means, that uh, Mr. Zelensky actually has already addressed a joint session of Congress. He's about to do it live, apparently, this evening. Why now is that uh, we're facing a kind of a juncture in the war, and the differences between the two approaches are going to probably come into uh, focus in quiet off-the-record, out-of-our-sight meetings. The U.S. would like to be sure that Ukraine is able to hold off the Russian advance, whereas Ukraine wants to be sure that the momentum they've built up will continue. That's two different kinds of ways of thinking about the nature of the war and, therefore, the weapon systems that are required. Uh, Ukraine has been told all along that they are not permitted to use Western weapons directly to attack Russia because Biden, quite correctly, does not want to lead into World War III. He cannot have a direct Western or NATO confrontation with Russia. So the weapons that have been given up until now are specifically designed not to reach deep into Russia, but now increasingly, uh, because of the effectiveness and the bravery of the Ukrainian army and the leadership represented by their President Zelensky, the Russians have been put on the back foot and therefore are increasing their lethality in what they're up to now. The demolishing of the infrastructure for energy is a major, on the outset of war, is a major attack. So uh, the U.S. has been steadily, along with allies, including us, 
increasing the capacity to defend whatever Russia is throwing at them. The announcement that has been made officially as of today to answer one of your questions, is now official what's been reported, re rumored and reported. The U.S. will, providing, will be providing the Patriot missile system, uh, a, a major upgrade into the defensive, defensive capabilities of Ukraine. It will take a while for them to get there, but it puts Russia on notice that they are not going to go unchallenged in the kind of um, assault that they've been undertaking recently. So what's Putin's reaction to this? What's China's reaction to this? Well, that's always a good question in terms of China. They all along have said all we really want is a peaceful solution. But at the same time, they're basically backstopping and bankrolling uh, the Russian uh, invasion by buying the oil at a good discount. So is India, too, by the way, and some others. But the uh, Chinese keep saying we're not actually promoting this. We don't really like, in principle, the idea that you can change borders by invasion. <laughs> that goes against their national interest. But quite, queer, quite clearly, uh, the, this duopoly that is intended, China wants to work with Russia to change the geopolitics of the world. And had Russia succeeded in its initial assault on Kiev and incorporated Ukraine, it would have significantly altered the power balance in the world. So China has an interest here. Russia has responded by, just before this visit, uh, Mr. Putin actually meeting for the first time with a number of his top defense officials uh, publicly and saying, once again, uh, well, first of all, saying something he hasn't said. We realize basically that errors have been made. We are listening. We're going to correct our behavior. We're going to be more effective. But he once again raised a nuclear threat. And I think that's the most dangerous part of all of this. The possibility that this will spill out into a nuclear confrontation or unilaterally that Russia would use nuclear weapons still remains on the table. And very recently, uh, with every escalation of capacity by Ukraine to defend itself, Russia continues to raise that possibility. And that's perhaps one of the most significant reactions you can possibly ask for. Is the nuclear reaction to uh, this new missile system that they will get, Ukraine will get from U.S.? I think it was uh, in, in anticipation that Russia would face increasingly effective countermeasures to the types of weapons they have been using. Um, quite clearly, the West, and starting with the U.S., has said we will not provide what Ukraine needs and has asked for from day one, since February 24th, a no-fly zone. There will not be a no-fly no fly zone declared by the West. That is, anything that comes in will be shot down by the West. That's not going to happen. But increasingly, ground-based weapons, and now uh, with the Patriots, they can also, to the degree Russia, uh, so the Ukraine still has uh, fighter planes, they can really arm their missiles in a more sophisticated fashion as well. But the ground war and some of the uh, new capacity, capacities by Patriots will escalate the potential to disrupt what Russia is doing. Uh, again, this just seems like it's delaying the inevitable. Um, how does Ukraine get through the winter? Can they? Yes. The question is, which is the inevitable? And that's what the conversations are in yeah. Washington. The inevitable, according to Washington, although they won't say it this way, they've, they've sent many signals, is some kind of a stalemate, that there's no way that in the long run, Ukraine can defend itself against the much, much larger military forces and capacity to bring in new military forces that are there. And keeping in mind, again, that uh, all these weapons are not 
permitted to be used directly against Russia itself. So you can't take out the rear for you can't take out all the uh, firing capacity that's there. But the Ukrainians are saying there's only one way this can win, not by stalemate, not by giving us enough defensive weapons. Give us what we need uh, to mm. continue an offensive mm. uh, push until victory. So the uh, medal that was just given by uh, the Ukrainian president to the American president was sent from Bakhmut, a, a, a town that the Russians have been mercilessly pounding. That hasn't uh, succeeded yet. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians are uh, relying, by the way, on U.S., un undoubtedly their intelligence operations, security uh, cooperation and by satellites and others, know where the weak spots are for the Russians. The Ukrainians want to push basically to sever the connection between North and South above Kherson, and thereby they hope to collapse the Russian army, and then there's an access route directly to Crimea. But essentially, they need to keep Crimea tied down so they can't send more troops in. So, it, and meanwhile, there's a real threat, and this is something to watch for, Scott. There's a real threat that Russia is now going to major launch a major counterattack, uh, perhaps out of Belarus once again, trying to take Kiev as they tried in the initial phases of the war. That's mm. already draining resources away from the front on the other end. So this war is by no means over. It, there will be no Christmas truce. The, what's going on in Washington now is what kind of um, offensive or defensive capabilities Ukraine can continue to mount. And I always have to emphasize to you and others that Ukraine is paying a terrible cost for this. We focus on the cost of the Russians, hmm. the loss of their generals and all that, and how many troops they're losing, and the Wagner group bringing in mercenaries and emptying out prisons and the collapse of the Russian army here and there. But the Ukrainians are fighting alone, and they're paying a terrible Damn. cost. And we are there, we meaning Canada, because we're part of this. We're there to help them defend themselves and perhaps to gain their freedom completely from the Russian offensive. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, Ukraine's President Zelensky meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden in Washington as we speak. As always, Elliot, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. As you no doubt know, uh, obviously, the weekend coming into uh, this Christmas holiday, we are expecting a snowstorm. And uh, the bad part seems to be it starts off as rain and and mess and stuff, and then just the deep freeze comes in, and you know what happens when that sort of thing happens. So uh, white Christmas? I don't know. Uh, it, I guess it depends where you are, or is that a given now? Let's bring in Ross Hall, uh, Global News Meteorologist, and is with us now. Ross, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing great. Yeah, only if it only could just be, yeah, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. I, we won't add the possibly damaging winds, the flash freeze, and the blizzard conditions as well that may lead to near zero visibility. But, you know. Yeah, really. Uh, if we could just have really the... Address everything. Yeah, right. If we could just have uh, something more uh, representative of the Christmas Carol as opposed to a uh, blinding snowstorm, ice storm, what have you. Right. So yeah. obviously, um, is a white Christmas now a given in southern Ontario? Or again, does it depend on this freeze and the rain and, and what have you? Tell us what's uh, happening. I think, we under I think, sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, excited about this storm. It's a lot, lot to go on going on here. But yeah, I, I think it's a guarantee. Uh, like it's, This is a very different situation than the system we were talking about last week. And that's one of my concerns with, with this forecast is a lot of people are going to go, oh, well, you know, it didn't happen last week, so why is it going to happen this week? Well, this is a very different setup, uh, what, the, namely the Arctic air that's at play. I'm sure 
or maybe some of you haven't heard about how cold it's been in places like Calgary and even Vancouver, uh, mm. for that matter, experiencing massive delays because of heavy snow and very, very cold conditions. Well, that's the brand of air that's on the way to our area, to the Great Lakes. And it's going to help to really intensify a low pressure system. It's going to take some time for the snow to arrive. It really will start to get going likely Friday afternoon into Saturday. Now, not to say this is going to be a historic snowfall amount for the Hamilton area, uh, but it's the combination of the flash freeze, those very strong, possibly damaging winds Friday night, especially into Saturday morning and, you know, reduced visibility and so on. That, that's the concern with the system. And it's going to stick around as well. It's going to impact the area really Friday into much of Saturday. So this is a, a prolonged weather event. So the, the concern really, Ross, is that transition period from Friday when it goes from rain to flash freezing to the snow. Is that your concern? And then obviously the wind's building up. Yeah, and that's right. And and that that transition uh, it looks to happen a little quicker. So initially we thought the rain would last for you know most of the morning commute Friday if you're still commuting on Friday. But we think that that uh, that cold air is going to start to move in a little earlier, so likely towards the tail end of the morning commute. Uh, so you basically, if you're up at 6 a.m., 5, 6 a.m., temperatures will be above freezing, uh, could be some showers. By 9, 10, 11 a.m., uh, we're starting to see that turn to snow, and uh, whatever rain did fall the, likely affected the brine on the roadways. So it uh, could be sheets of ice in some places as the temperatures drop, as that snow accumulates on those icy surfaces. Uh, so it's going to be quite a mess, and not to mention the winds that are going to be picking up. And those winds will blow around any snow we do see. Uh, the heaviest snow will be to the lee of Georgian Bay and Lake Huron, so north and west of our area. However, there's still the potential for 10-plus centimeters of snow uh, heading into Friday into Saturday. And again, the concern is not necessarily how much snow you're going to have to shovel. It's going to be driving around in that snow and trying to get around in it because the winds will be so strong, it won't take a lot uh, to blow it around. All right, uh, watching out for that transition on Friday and then the winds that come after. Ross Hall with his Global News Meteorologist, the impending storm that is coming just for the holiday. Ross, thank you for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. You as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Can Canada's infrastructure, uh, particularly Ontario's, keep up with our population growth? uh, growth. Interesting uh, article in the National Post on this as we continually talk. How many times have I said this? Uh, Four major political parties all saying we're going to need one million homes or more in order to continue, yet we don't seem to be building anything, including the infrastructure that all of this needs to sit on. Let's bring in Maddie Siamatiki, Director of the Infrastructure Institute and Professor of Geography and Planning with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Maddie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, nice to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So can our aging infrastructure keep up with this and, and what our goals are? Obviously, we need the immigration for labor reasons and such. We are growing. We're a growing country, but we seem to be reluctant to build anything. This is the big question. Uh, immigration is happening. Uh, the federal government is speaking about bringing in 500,000 new immigrants per year uh, over the next few years. Uh, immigration, as you mentioned, is positive uh, for what it does for our economy, for family reunification, uh, for our labor force. But we do need to be providing the infrastructure uh, and the housing. And in Canada, both of those have been very challenging to build, and especially here in Ontario. Uh, and we're already starting to creak under the pressure 
uh, of uh, of our population and of uh, the misgeneration of investment. And it's it's starting to show in terms of uh, our roads and our our congestion, uh, in terms of our uh, ability to build housing, uh, our green spaces. We're really struggling electrification. We're really struggling with all of the infrastructure that's necessary to handle a growing and vibrant uh, population. I love that phrase, a misgeneration, a misgeneration of, uh, of infrastructure. What is it? When did building become a bad word? We used to be proud of this. Uh, Canada was, it was growing. It was exploding. When did build become a bad word? Why is that? Well, up until the 1980s, we built a lot of infrastructure. Uh, we built universities, schools, public transit, electrification, uh, sewers and waterways and expanded our communities. We, we really did build. And then we stopped uh, for a generation and it, it became challenging. And we're in a point of intensification now. And that means that it's even harder to build infrastructure. Uh, you're not building on green fields. You're building in existing communities. Uh, there are people who have feedback and concerns and pushback against uh, development and growth and intensification. Uh, and, and then there were also money issues. And we debated uh, how we were going to pay for all this infrastructure. Then there were political differences over what should be built. And uh, here in the greater Toronto area, we tend to go back and forth and back and forth again over public transit and roads and all sorts of other types of infrastructure. Uh, and it's all of these, uh, this relitigating of past decisions that's really led to challenge. It's led to gridlock in our decision making. Uh, and in that gap, uh, there's been that misgeneration of investment and we're starting to uh, see the consequences of it. It's as if if we stop building, the problem will go away and, and we won't have to deal with it. I mean, lots of chatter around the Greenbelt right now here in Ontario. Uh, obviously, the line above the GTHA, you can build on this side, not on the opposite side of that. Obviously, increasing density and, and, and driving up prices there. We hear there's a lot of, of white field there that's there ready for development for the next 10, 20, 30 years or so. But it's not getting infrastructure into it. Why is that? Considering well, that, that this said. is this is designed for development. Well, that's right. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about building onto the green belt, which I think would be very damaging uh, to our waterways and to our natural habitat. Uh, but there's a lot of area within the existing growth boundary that we can build on, that we can build the complete communities and provide it with infrastructure. And in fact, many of the areas within the growth boundary are already serviced uh, or close by to existing infrastructure, which saves cost. The key is integrated planning, is to integrate where the housing is going, uh, especially at higher densities, and integrate that with uh, the public transit service to integrate that with healthcare uh, services, with sewers and electricity lines, and then with uh, with the schools and with the rec centers and with the parks. It's all about this integration. That's where you get efficiency of growth and complete uh, vibrant communities. And we've really struggled with that coordination because it happens across orders of government and it requires large amounts of upfront money that are, that are then paid back uh, over time through taxes. And we've really struggled uh, with how we're going to finance and then how we're going to plan in, a, in an integrated way. It seems that we're nibbling at the green belt because that's the way to get houses built as far as I uh, uh, infrastructure and the ground support they need, whereas the white belt, it, nothing can get built there. So uh, why are we complaining about the green belt being eaten when we're not using what the white belt is? Why can't we get that developed? 
I would actually argue that it's the opposite, that actually the green belt is unserviced in many cases and would require much heavier investment in infrastructure. No, but I guess the piece that they were, I, I understand the piece that they were opening was close to infrastructure. That's what made it easy. And, and white belt areas aren't being developed fast enough. So again, how can we develop yeah. the white areas more efficiently? Well, we can really start uh, to push in that direction. We can accelerate how we do uh, permitting and planning. Uh, we can encourage uh, missing middle types of housing along our avenues, which are already serviced, uh, which has been a, <clears throat> a very challenging type of uh, development to get uh, built in this area. Uh, the federal government can come to the table with housing dollars to make sure that uh, we're not just building mar market housing, but providing housing for those who are most in need uh, with supportive and deeply affordable housing. There are all sorts of ways that we can get this done. I think the idea that this area is full and that we have to sprawl onto our green belt, I think, is a fallacy and will actually make things worse in terms of cost, in terms of congestion, uh, and then ultimately in terms of our natural habitat as well. Is the hassle trying to get the white belt built? Is that actually uh, costing the green belt? Is that uh, is that hurting the green belt? I mean, the fact that they're going to the green belt instead of the white belt. Why aren't we going to the white belt? Let's get the white belt built easier, quicker, faster. That is harming the green belt, is it not? The two are definitely related, and it has been extremely challenging uh, to intensify uh, in this region. And you have what has sometimes been called hero neighborhoods. If you think about how our city looks, uh, it is what could be called tall and sprawl. There are some areas where it's been easy or convenient to build that have received huge amounts of densification along our waterfronts, along transit nodes, and along other areas where oftentimes there hasn't been a huge amount of pushback. And those areas have received huge amounts of density. And then conversely, we have large areas that have been zoned for single family homes, which have been almost impenetrable and have been untouched. And in fact, in many cases, they're actually losing population. And the two are connected. And so, uh, you know, because it's been so challenging to intensify, large portions of our region, there is this urge to go outwards and uh, to find uh, green pastures and green fields to build on. And I think what we're seeing now is a renewed effort and a redoubling of those efforts to build, to intensify in smart ways near where our existing infrastructure is. That's the point of connection. And that will actually save us money uh, down the road from not having uh, to build infrastructure into green fields. That is also then costly to service over the long term. When we think about infrastructure, infrastructure isn't just about capital upfront dollars. It has real long-term expenses that ha it has to be operated and maintained day after day, month after month, year after year. And those costs really add up over time. Now we can just get it done. Matty Siamatiki with us, Director of Infrastructure Institute and Professor of Geography Planning with the University of Toronto. Matty, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too, Scott. An exclusive for Global News 2020 Intel warned Trudeau government that China's interference in Canadian elections will likely be pervasive. Uh, another great article by investigative reporter Sam Cooper. I'm going to read you the first part of it. An unredacted 2020 national security document alleges that Beijing used an extensive network of community groups to conceal the flow of funds between Chinese officials and Canadian members of an election interference network, all in an effort to advance its own own political agenda in the 2019 federal contest. The Privy Council office document, which Global News has reviewed, is a distillation of sensitive investigations and was published February of 2020, around four months after the 2019 election. It warned that influence operations such as these were likely to be more persistent and pervasive in future elections. To talk more about all of this, author of this piece, Sam Cooper, Global News National Investigative Journalist, and here now. Sam, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, it seems, Sam, we're spending an awful lot of time talking about this and you doing some incredible reporting, but it seems as if uh, still people are just not willing to accept this or move forward with it. Uh, the PM seems to be focusing uh, on more so that there was no evidence of funding in the 2019 election um, and, and, and sort of deviates from there. Is he only answering part of the question here? He has already said he didn't know anything about this. What do we know? Well, uh, what we know is that first, uh, I, I always appreciate bringing you up to date. As you know, it's an ongoing investigation. This latest report that you read from the top, it's explosive. This is four months after the federal election in 2019. We have uh, a senior intelligence circle that's meant to brief the prime minister's office and officials on national security threats. And here I have reviewed the document and now can tell Canadians it says, uh, I'll read you another quote. China's, quote, United Front network of quasi-official and local community and interest groups allow it to obfuscate communication and the flow of funds between Canadian targets and Chinese officials, end quote. So this is a document that was uh, pushed up to senior officials in Canada's government shortly after the election was essentially attacked in 2019. And the, the other key point, as you said, Quote, foreign interference efforts are likely to be more persistent and pervasive in future elections. So irregardless of what any senior elected official in the Trudeau government is saying, we can report with absolute truth and clarity. These documents are repeatedly printed inside Canada's government warning that this this network is seeking to place candidates chosen by Beijing in Canada's government. It's getting worse. Community leaders, quote, facilitate the transfer of funds. Uh, this document says it all, really, about these schemes that are occurred, targeted at least 11 candidates in the greater Toronto area in 2019, and it's going to get worse. It can't be any more clear than that. Canada's government at a high level knows. Uh, what is CSIS' role here? Um, is it their job to advise the Prime Minister? Because there seems that there, there's a, a breakdown of communication there. What is their role in all of this? Well, their role, firstly, uh, you know, in the, in the formation of this document we're talking about, this comes from, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, gathered CSIS investigation reports over the years focused on the Toronto area, we know RCMP and CSIS have had deep concerns about Chinese consulate uh, officials involved in intelligence, uh, handling of the community, and exactly this activity. So their role is to investigate. It is to not to prosecute, but to report to senior elected officials. Here's a concern. You need to look at it. If people want a comparable, think about the government's response to the convoy. Uh, this was, you know, a serious thing, and we know that the government took it seriously eventually and shut it down. What the critics of this government would say is China's deeply uh, insidious attacks on Canada's democracy is orders of magnitude, a greater threat than any other to Canada right now. And this government hasn't responded with new laws that would counter the threat. Uh, it's there to warn. It seems that this uh, uh, this information is getting out through people like you or what have you uh, of what's going on and what CSIS is talking about. Why or, or can CSIS reveal more information or is that up to the government? Because it seems at times the CSIS director is willing to um, uh, sort of uh, give us advice to the prime minister on issues. We saw that during the Freedom Convoy. Um, but, but what's the connection there? Why Why is some of this information getting out but not all of it? 
Well, uh, I, I can I can tell you very clearly the reason I'm getting such sensitive documentation, just stunning Canadian intelligence on the really the biggest threat to, to democracies worldwide and how it's enacted in Canada is because people in the intelligence community believe that the government isn't listening and responding. So uh, what they can do, we've already heard critics say, look, in the United Kingdom, they're domestic intelligence agency went public in January 22, 2022, which uh, they named a name. They said this individual, uh, I won't say the name, is involved in uh, infiltrating the United Kingdom Parliament through major fundraising, other activities connected to the same group we're talking about in, in this Canadian document, the United Front Work Department. And so the UK has gone public with warnings. Canada has not. The critics or people that I'm talking to would say there's a big divide between what Canada knows in intelligence and what how CSIS is handling the issue. And furthermore, you hit the nail on the head. At the end of the day, Canada's government, the senior elected officials, have to enable CSIS uh, to, to, to be more bold. They would have to give the RCP the tools to prosecute. So it's at the end of the day, it's about elected officials. What's this? What's in this for the federal government? Why? Why would they not be looking after uh, the best interests of Canadians here? Is it they're too scared of retaliation, or there's they're too woven? Uh, they're woven too close to this situation. They're too much involved. Well, I, I think you really, uh, you you really uh, are pointing to things that I'm trying to discover. And those are both possibilities. I, I don't want to get ahead of myself without no. corroborating very firmly a thesis. But I can tell you, I've already talked to people in political parties that say we have to be careful what we say on China. Otherwise, we will face uh, consequences at the polls. And that's what we saw in 2021, more than 2019. Literally, uh, political leaders are afraid of what they should put forward on their platform with regards to China's worldwide activities. So yes, the fear of China is a, is a very real factor. Are any parties benefiting? Are any politicians benefiting? I do think that that could be the case. I'm not quite ready to report that, but I'm working on it. Wow. Well, let us know. Uh, 2020 Intel warned Trudeau government that China's interference in Canadian elections will likely be pervasive. Sam Cooper, the author, investigative reporter for Global News. Great work, Sam. Keep it up. We'll be in touch. Yes, thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now to talk some politics. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you feeling considering the West Coast seems to be getting more attention than the East Coast uh, of late when it comes to snow and, and snowstorms and stuff? Like, you know, you guys are no longer the big story here. Well, look, do they even have snowplows in Vancouver? <laughs> I mean, come on. Look, uh, <laughs> you drive some over. Gotta learn, they got to learn to deal with winter, Scott. I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with it, buddy. <laughs> oh, you sound like the rest of Canada when talking about BC and their snow. It's like, have you not been to the interior at all? You should buy some boots. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, that, but Vancouver is not the interior. 
All right. So uh, a couple of things I want to talk to you about. First of all, uh, healthcare. Then Pierre probably ever. I hope we're getting a chance to get to both. But uh, healthcare. The uh, we know the provinces all want more money, um, and and the prime minister wants to see changes where that money is going to. He wants to see reform. Um, and we've heard this over and over again. It sounds like the provinces are trying to reform, um, but what they need to reform they can't because of the Canada Health Act. So uh, is the only way to really address the current system by adding more money unless you make wholesale changes to the template and actually have reform. So my question is, when the Prime Minister talks about reform, what is reform? If I go to Santa Claus at the mall and say, I want a big box of reform, what do I get? Because it seems that that's pushing it onto the provinces, but we're not, you know, from what I understand within the Canada Health Act, there's only so much the provinces can reform. Yeah, well, yeah, look, I'm no expert on the Canada Health Act, but to, to answer what's in that reform package, uh, I think both parties would agree it's better service, uh, particularly in emergency rooms, uh, in, uh, you know, um, uh, surgeries, general surgeries, uh, elective surgeries and the like, and then the list goes down from there. Now, some may say that's restrained by the act. I don't honestly know, Scott, but... Uh, that both parties, in this case the feds and the provinces, need to find a way to stop saying it can't be done and get it done. I think the prime minister has uh, probably more public support for um, saying that he he wants to give money but uh, with strings attached than uh, giving it holus bolus to the provinces. So uh, it's they need to get together. They need to figure something out because even what they figure out now is not going to make a difference in the immediate term, but maybe it starts to make a difference in the next six months uh, to a year. Why does it, why does this, the public seem to be blaming this on the provinces when it's all the provinces left to right, north to south, east to west? Well, I don't understand why. And, and well, like we've been know. doing that. Bla- we've been blaming the provinces for like decades. Well, I mean, they provide the health care, so you're going to get blamed for it, whether it's your fault or not, right? Um, if, if, uh, if you're the front but line again. and the front, front line of work isn't working for you, you're going to get the blame for it. But, I mean, we do have this this this, this, this system of government in Canada where, you know, the, the feds effectively write the check and the provinces are supposed to do the job. They need, they need to change. They need to look at how they change it and improve it. And again, I, I think the public is not saying, well, I'm fully with Ontario and I'm not with Canada or I'm fully with Canada. I'm not with Ontario. They don't care. They yeah. want the system to work better for them. And the blame moves around based on their mood uh, of the day and whatever challenge uh, somebody in the public is encountering. Again, they seem to be all over um, pharmacare or dental care or daycare, which are all provincial jurisdictions, and will what, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, be in the same bad shape that the healthcare system is? I, I don't understand how anybody can't see this. Well, I accept the, the, the difference with those, I guess, is they're now creating them from the ground up. I, I, I think, mm. back to your point about the Canada Health Act, we have a system that governs and delivers health in Canada that was built for 60 years ago, not built yeah. for today. And nobody's willing to say, you know what, to say just that and to say, okay, you know, yeah, let's make some component. Let, let's change some of what it means to have private service in there. Let's change 
some of what it uh, what the responsibilities for delivery are. I mean, the federal government delivers health care. You've identified or social care in some areas for indigenous people. They're the primary deliverer of of health services. So, in in many places. So, you know, let let's have a twenty. 23 conversation, not a 1963 conversation. That's where we're trapped. Well said. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacostata. Paul Ebra next time. All right, Tim, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, take, uh, take care, Scott. Happy holidays if I don't get to talk to you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've chatted at length uh, in regard to uh, Canada's self-sufficiency or lack thereof, and we have certainly have seen a lot of that during uh, the global pandemic and how we reacted to that, whether it was um, watching the rest of the industrialized world get vaccinated while we waited four to six months behind them, um, you know, whether it's energy and, and, and getting our energy to the rest of the world so they're not being weaponized with their own energy, as we're seeing with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and such, uh, many are asking why Canada has not been more self-sufficient, why we uh, rely on supply chains uh, that at times, especially during issues like we've been going through, are very uh, weak and such. And, uh, you know, the recent uh, situation is a medication shortage, which really we've seen reported, but nobody seems to want to be accountable for it. And it's not a shortage that's happening in other countries. It's not a worldwide issue. It's just it's a simple uh, situation where we're, we're just with an increase in the flu and respiratory viruses and such uh, kids uh, that are targeting kids. Kids are getting sick. Kids are needing medication. And we simply don't have enough. Let's bring in Ofer Barron, distinguished professor of operations management, academic, uh, academic director, MMA program at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Ofer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for uh, having me. So, Ofer, why is Canada experiencing medication issues? This has been going on for an awfully long time. We understand there's supply chain issues around the world and how that's affecting everything. But this seems to be a real issue for Canada. How did we get here? Um, is it a case of not being self-sufficient enough or just not procuring enough of this? It's a combination of both, in fact. Uh, over the Last couple of decades, more and more production uh, has moved to uh, China, India, uh, Brazil, and uh, we gave up, like many other uh, developed countries, on our ability to produce uh, many items, including uh, pharmaceutical uh, items and medications uh, in Canada. Um, uh, the Prime Minister says that he doesn't know, this is a quote, I don't know offhand if it's the right thing for Canada to, to be starting producing these particular pills or whether it's just a question of getting a more reliable supply chain and agreement out there. Uh, at one point, comparing these to oranges, if we had a big orange shortage in Canada, people might be shouting, okay, we need uh, we need to make more orange or greenhouses so we can grow more oranges in Canada. Is that an accurate analogy? What are your thoughts? It's a nice analogy. Uh, we are living in a world where we cannot be self-sufficient for everything. Uh, oranges uh, have some objective uh, difficulties in to to grow in Canada. Uh, our weather is not as supportive uh, much of the year. Uh, with medication, there are other difficulties uh, that are objective, uh, like uh, patents, uh, 
and uh, complicated supply chain. It's also typically perishable items. You cannot store them for too long. So there are uh, objective difficulties that are inherent in uh, manufacturing uh, education. And because we cannot be self-sustaining everything, that may be uh, a place to think about what type of medications we do want to produce here and what type of medications we are willing to purchase outside, but as you suggested, uh, diversify our uh, supplier base. Uh, it, it appears that many said they saw this coming. We could see what was going on uh, in the Southern Hemisphere and such, um, and, and it was a procurement issue. We just didn't secure enough. Is is that accurate? Because, again, um, there were anecdotally you know, stories of people that knew friends in the United States that were sending stuff up from the U.S. to Canadians here. Uh, yes, we haven't procured enough. Uh, because uh, we didn't forecast uh, demand to be so high, right? And that's something that we've seen, we are more familiar with, with PPE and with vaccines and uh, other COVID-related stuff. But in this case, apparently we didn't procure enough uh, earlier. So that's, even if we would have produ- produced, we may find ourselves not producing enough because we have a wrong forecast to some extent. You said India and China producers of. Uh, how do we get a more uh, secure supply chain? If we're not if we're not producing these, how do we secure a supply chain? Um, I think just working with more suppliers, possibly in these countries and possibly in other countries, uh, including uh, obviously U.S. and Mexico, which are closer to us and uh, we have uh, good trade agreements with. What about when it comes to vaccines? Is this a similar issue that we were going through when it came to vaccination for COVID-19 way back when? Yes, it's a very similar issue in this sense. Obviously, the impact and emergency of uh, COVID vaccines was uh, much uh, harsher because uh, all of the population were uh, exposed to it. And we have been in quarantine for a long, long time. But uh, the overall settings are similar. In what way can we better prepare? If we don't get from China, India, or those other mass producers, where do we get it from? Um, if we can't get it from other, any mass producer, we'll, we'll have to get to some uh, smaller producers. We have history of uh, producing uh, medication and vaccines in uh, Canada over many, many years. And... Uh, we, if we want to get into this and be a little bit more active uh, in this field, we'll have to work on training our people and also creating some um, exports agreements uh, to the U.S., which is probably the largest medical market in the world. Are we more interested in generic drugs than we are in brand drugs that would provide these? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is uh, true. Uh, there are drugs that are being developed in uh, Canada, and uh, we have them as patents. That's, again, a century-old kind of tradition, uh, from insulin to more recent uh, uh, drugs that are treating uh, blood diseases and so on. But generic drugs are mass consumption drugs in many cases. There is a point in, in having... Uh, those drugs being uh, produced by by several suppliers around the world. And there's certainly some places where 
Canadian presence can be useful. Well, for Barrett with us, Distinguished Professor, Operations Management, Academic Director, MMA Program at Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. Ofer, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Happy holidays. Desperately trying to keep the uh, issue of our uh, much exhausted failing and crying for help uh, Canadian healthcare system in um, in the uh, public eye and it's very very frustrating when the provinces are trying to get a meeting the feds don't want to meet uh, the provinces ask for more money the feds say no you've got to find reforms um, can you can the provinces reform without changes to the federal Canada Health Act because reforms, what are, what are reforms? More doctors, more nurses, less wait times, less lineups? How's that for a start? How do we do that? And is the only way to actually address the Canadian healthcare system the way it is, there's nothing else to do but add money to it, unless you change the template. And are the provinces capable of doing that? Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute. Dr. Sean Watley here now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thanks. I'm going to hammer you with probably this, a lot of the same questions, but I keep coming back to this. Uh, provinces want more money. Um, the Prime Minister says uh, the provinces must kit, commit to reforms. What are those reforms? Is, can the provinces commit to a reform? Can they make uh, a, a change in the template? What are those reforms? Yeah, so I'm glad you keep asking me the question. I apologize if I haven't answered it very well before. But basically, in the spring, the federal government, Health Minister uh, uh, Duclos, listed five reforms that they're after. Now, I have to be cautious here. I'm not trying to be an apologist for the for reforms that they're asking for, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go deep, deep into details. I want them to try to sell them to you. But basically, you know, first up, they said address staff shortages and fix delays in diagnosis, treatment, and surgery. So to my mind, that sounds like four requirements listed under the first issue. The second one, access to a family doc and access to family health services. Number three, fix long-term care and home care. Again, that's a double-barreled thing. Number four, deal with mental health and deal with addiction problems or addiction services and, and helping with addiction crisis in, in Canada. And then number five, uh, come up with a health data plan and deal with virtual care. So each one of those five bullets is at least double-barreled, if not, you know, having four outcomes on it. And, uh, yeah, it's called strings attached. The federal government wants to call the shots, even though they're not willing to pay for it. Uh, again, many would say, yeah, check, 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 check. Those are all great. Yeah, let's start with that. Um, but how do we get there? Are, uh, again, it seems that the provinces are left to deal with a system that they can't manipulate. They can't maneuver around. So the only way to address it is to add more money to it without changing the template of it. Is that possible? Does there need to be a negotiation between the feds and the provinces and a, um, uh, a renewing of the Canada Health Act, a, a refurb uh, to, to update this in some way so the provinces do have the options? Uh, we're talking about reforms, but are there really any options? Like, you know, what you just said, they're really not reforms. They're the result of reforms. How do we get there? Well, exactly right. And so essentially, the feds are calling the shots. 
and setting the game plan and determining the outcome and not willing to being willing to pay for it. Now, having said all this, yes, changing the Canada Health Act would, would, would help, or even just having a discussion about what sort of changes can we make within the current legislative environment. Having said that, though, certain places across Canada, so Canada is known as the, as the country of pilot projects when it comes to health care, and you will see pockets of innovative um, um, uh, ways to process patients or move them through or close waiting rooms. My first book was about that, you know, no more lethal weights. And so you will see outstanding pockets of great management, but those teams that change processes are swimming uphill. They're fighting against the current regulatory environment. They're fighting against the current funding arrangements. They're fighting against incentives. And really, it's, it's, it's about digging in and saying, okay, folks, we're here. These are our friends and neighbors that we're trying to care for. What can we change? So I don't want to say that there hasn't been any change. There are pockets of change, but all the incentives are aligned against it. But I would ask the federal government, you know, so you want more control. We could attack this in two ways. Number one, why would you want to do that as a tactic? You know, it's a bit like a dog chasing a car. Do you really yeah. want all that control? And if you have all that control, now you're going to have all the accountability. Furthermore, do you really think you can do a better job? What makes you think that you're so sure of this? And, and finally, if the provinces agree to outcomes, okay, we're going to build a data system. Well, guess what happens at the end of the year? And it's been happening for 20 years that I've been involved with this the province to say, oh, you know what? We couldn't do it. It's just like when a renovation in your house. Oh, sorry, there's a cost overrun. Sorry, there's a delay. Targets are always missed. So it's bizarre to me as a political tactic why he's doing this. But the second part is just pure arrogance. How dare you? You yeah. promised to pay 50%. The provinces have built this entitlement program that you know it's essentially a white elephant. They can't offload this anyway. And then you stand there and cross your arms and say, I want better performance, even though there are more Canadians, sicker Canadians, older Canadians, more technology, more services. It's like saying, hey, the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> it's, just, it's absurd. So who helps those that are trying to be innovative? You said there's pockets of innovation here, but obviously they're swimming upstream. So who helps? How do those get pushed to the forefront? Because it would seem that would require both the province and the feds, but it seems the feds are just pushing it off to the provinces again. Like this is what we've been doing for years. Yeah, totally. So you're, you're asking about how do we scale up pilot projects or how do we scale up pockets of, um, you know, outstanding performance, excellence. And, and really, it, change, it, it requires a change in philosophy. So if you're going to try something new, by definition, you will fail. You've got to fail some of the time hmm. before you figure out a new way to do a light bulb. That is incredibly difficult, uh, you know, or scary politically. If um, I'm taking the flack for this healthcare system, whether I'm the provincial minister of health or the federal minister of health, and yet now I'm letting these people innovate and test hypotheses and try to improve, uh, you know, on the local level, that is very, very scary. So until we get a little bit of daylight between the people who are trying to innovate care and the people who are, are being voted in and out of office, right, they're losing their job if they get bad outcomes. You tie those two things together, they're not going to want to see any change at the front line with clinicians. Uh, how long do you think we can keep hiding behind the same arguments? Uh, well, again, preaching reform, because we seem to be just doing the same thing. Yeah, so, so, so great question. I thought we would, we would uh, see a massive change during COVID, and we didn't. And yeah. now we're post-COVID. It seems like there's appetite there. 
it, it's there's a great book uh, Carolyn Tui she wrote it she called Accidental Logics and it looks at how massive changes have happened in healthcare systems around the world Canada um, uh, in Europe and the American system it looks at Netherlands and also uh, the UK system and really she says you know we'd like to think that this is a logical approach and data driven and you have people sit down and you make a decision and it's all thoughtful but most of the time that's not how change happens. It's an accidental, you know, it's a lining of the stars. Okay, we got a majority government, and oh, by the way, the public really wants change, and oh, by the way, you know, there were some high-level news stories that just created this opportunity to try something new. And so it's not just a matter of saying, okay, our performance isn't what we want, and public sentiment is changing, and it, it has to be in alignment of all these stars. Once you get that, then you actually have to dig into the details of how to change it. So then you're getting into, you know, geeky stuff about governance, who decides, form, function, and purpose, and, and how do you structure things. And, and there's a whole body of literature there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. But that's where the discussion has to go. How do we actually run this thing? We can't run this thing when the people who are trying to run it are at risk of losing their job in an election every few years. Hmm. Here's hoping we've learned something from a global pandemic. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author of When Politics Becomes Before Patients, How Canadian Medicare is Failing, and a senior fellow with McDonald-Laurie Institute. Uh, Sean, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. Coming up, after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, although I have a question for you, Scott, because you are a professional broadcaster. You have been for a long time. Have you ever gone to a commercial Uh break and left your microphone on while your producer also has his microphone on so your entire conversation during the commercial is broadcast? Did you do that? We we did. And and the sad part is (laughs) – last night we did. And the sad part is – that, you know, you'd like to think that people would see just how cool you are with the stuff you talk about. Right. We were debating grammar rules. Is it fewer nice. or less? And, yes. and all of a sudden, all the, the, the texts are lining up. People, we can hear you. We can hear you. The texts are flowing in. And a friend of mine is calling saying, we can hear you. I was like, okay, well, I wish we'd thought of something cooler. But thank goodness we said something, not anything really bad. It doesn't happen a lot in talk radio because the mic's usually on anyway. But when I was playing music, yeah, sometimes it would stay on and then people would be talking in the background. But then, you know, the bad part is is all of a sudden the F-bombs would enter into it and it would get very colorful. And usually it was quite the opposite. It was something you shouldn't have said that you said. Yeah, no, that was uh, the other one. And I've told this story before, but my very, very, very first day doing radio, I was really nervous. And uh, the producer at the time... um, the music comes up. I'd never even heard my intro music before. And all of a sudden she points at me to go and I have figured out this really great rant that I'm going to start with. And I just go at it and I just lay into it. And about 10 seconds in, she whispers into my headset, turn on your turn microphone. On. <laughs> there you go. That'll help. All right. I'm looking at your show sheet for today. Yes. And I'm curious about this. Two polls taken for Canadians, 92, 1992, and then in 2022, have things changed? I'm guessing, and I don't want to you know, spoil your story here, but things are a lot sim- more similar than what we would think. Well, we're going to find out. I, I mean, I, I, the, the poll seems to show a few things that are... 
similar. Uh, people are still concerned about the economy. But one thing that re- there's a couple things that are really fascinating that I'm going to be asking him about. But one of the things that's really interesting is if you look at the things then that were of most concern to people. And remember, 1992 would have been in a recession, so you mm-hmm. know, economy obviously concerning. But right now, up at the very top of the things that people say in the poll, they're concerned about healthcare. Unsurprisingly, uh, yeah. anyone who listens to your show knows that, and. Uh, CPP, need more contributions into CPP, which would appear mm. to me to be a reflection of our aging population. If we've gone from being worried about jobs to worried about health care and retirement funds, says something about the age of our country, no? Yeah, um, absolutely. But I would guess um, over and above that, things, basic things like health care, um, the economy or affordability, depending upon, obviously, as you said, during a time of recession, uh, interest rates and, and just putting food on the table. It's the basic we used to call kitchen table issues. They always stay there. Yeah. And one of the things that's pretty high on the list now and was high on the list, if you look at the 92 poll that we're going to talk about, is jobs. The irony of it is that that's mm. two completely different things. Yeah. Then yeah. we were needing the government to find ways to prop up business so that jobs could be created. Now we have too many jobs and not enough people to take them. We're trying to figure yeah. out how do you make people want to work? That is a very valid point. And like you said, an aging population. So, and hence all of the uh, excitement around healthcare as well. Another thing you're going to bring up, and we'll, we'll just touch on this quickly. And we were, my wife and I were actually talking about this the other day. And it's the amount of ads for gambling on every single sporting event. And it's not even so much the ads which are separate, it's how the gambling intertwined. I don't, it's, yeah, it's how it's wound into the game, where it's even part of the stats, it's even part of a, uh, a color broadcast or, or what have you. Uh, you know, it, it's amazing, you know, running commercials for one, for something is one thing, a service or whatever, that's one thing. But to actually weave it into the fabric of the game, that's what I'm surprised at. I, well, I'm not surprised because clearly there's a huge amount of money. Lots once of money. This, lots once of this money. became legal, it became a huge, huge money uh, pile. But what I'm uh, – first of all, I, I am so entirely tired of this. I mean I, I could not – I'm not a gambler. I could not care less. I don't want to have a game that I'm watching interrupted by somebody who I don't know who they are come on and tell me, you know, now you can uh, jump in and at a minus 116, you can get so-and-so to the yeah. – I don't – you know what? If, the, you know what they should do? All the Canadian sports networks, T, well, both of them, TSN and Sportsnet, they both have like five channels. More than that, more than five channels. Why don't you yeah. put, you want to have the Leaf game with all the gambling stuff? Have a gambling channel where those who want to do it can tune in and there's someone chatting away about all the numbers and what you can do. And the rest of us can Spilling, ignore it. Spinning a roulette wheel while the game is well, on. It, like, honestly, I, yeah. I've reached, and, and I'm not even getting into yeah. yet, I'm not even getting into my confidence, and that's a bad word because it's a bad thing, that five or six years from now, if not that far down the road, Scott, we are going to be having problems with people with gambling issues. And I'm not talking necessarily even about people like you and I, although it could. I'm talking about 16 and 17-year-old kids. And that's what they're worried about. They're worried about the kids. Yep. But it's it's... you know, fully exposed. And unlike, say, when they used to have beer commercials endlessly on games, you mm. used to have to be a certain age to go and buy the beer. You could get someone to buy it maybe, but you had to do... Now, if you can get on, you can fake it. You can gamble. 
All right, it's all coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read them in your spectator. Scott, have a great show. Thanks for the time. Be well. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. So we're getting rain, then everything gets colder, and then snow with heavy winds. Well, it's good to know the hammer will know what spring is like in Nova Scotia.